0: tomorrow night, predominantly to the young people, on much the same message, and I have to give you a little background on this. Uh, I was not raised in a Reformed church or a Presbyterian church. I grew up in Central California in an Arminian Baptist dispensational church where we had revivals once or twice a year, and uh, we walked the aisle and signed the card, and I used to go to church camp at Hume Lake up near Fresno, and this was back in the uh, 60s, and every year we would throw our faggot on the fire. That has a whole different meaning now. In fact, we could get sued. And there was a yearly rededication of life to the Lord. The problem was, at least in my case, that there was no life to rededicate but every year we went through the same motions and did the same thing and walked the aisle and signed the card and we were told never to have anybody let us doubt our salvation. And then as I grew up and got into college and went with my dad to the Bill Gothard Institute, we were told to write our, if we ever doubted our salvation to write our name on a stick and drive it into the ground. And every time we were tempted to doubt or have low assurance to go look at this stick in the ground, and that would give us assurance. And then as I uh, began to read the sermons of Jonathan Edwards, and I originally did that out of ancestral curiosity. I was researching my genealogy and trying to get a sense of who I was and where I came from. I found that through my mother's line I came from Oliver Cromwell, And through my dad, Jonathan Edwards, which makes me a descendant of uh, John Cotton, Solomon Stoddard, Thomas Hooker, James Pierpont, the founder of Yale, and preachers way, way back when. And as I began to read Jonathan Edwards and his description of conversion, one of the first things that struck me was, if this is Christianity, I don't know what Christianity is, but I do know one thing, I'm not a Christian. And after that happened, there were some significant changes because all the cards signed in the world hadn't saved me. And I couldn't remember much going on in Sunday school or things like that that had much of anything to do with salvation. And all church camp ever seemed to do was trying to learn how to be cool so we wouldn't stick out too badly at school, that we could fit in better. And the more I learn about Christianity, it's not fitting in at all. It's actually standing out like a sore thumb, because being a Christian means you're different than everybody else in the world. But the more I got into Puritanism, I was also impressed with their deep, deep sense of love for children and their desire to evangelize children. Even all of, all of them were pedo believing in infant baptism. And I saw where Sunday school had actually started in England about a century and a half ago as an evangelistic endeavor to the unchurched children of the poor neighborhoods, and how they would get the children of those neighborhoods and bring them in between the Sunday morning and Sunday evening services for the purpose of evangelism. And that typically for centuries all the children had been in the worship service, the only uh, exception to that seemed to be that when a mother had an infant, a newborn, she might stay home with it three months until she could train it to sit still in church, until she could train it to uh, be a part of the thing, and while she also recovered from giving birth. But it became more and more an issue for me of how little the Reformed churches I had been a part of were really doing to evangelize children. And this sermon came out of that concern. I'd like to read with you verses 13 through 16 of chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. You know, we hear much of what we would call, quote, the tender mercies of Christ, his love, his compassion, his mercy, His gentleness and His benevolent goodness. And it's really hard for us to imagine any other emotion or emotions besides those just mentioned. But here in Mark's Gospel, and also in the parallel accounts given in Matthew 19 and Luke 18, we find a totally different response from Jesus. Now, here's the setting. Parents, well, it just says people, they... I assume, I think we can presume these are ch- parents are bringing little children to Jesus to be blessed. Mark calls them little children. Luke calls them infants. Luke uses the same word in his account of this that we have translated about Christ in the manger as a babe in swaddling clothes. In his account of how the wise men found Christ, Peter uses this same word for a newborn babe who desires milk from mother's breast. However, to be fair, the word is also used in the New Testament to describe older children, even as old as 12 years old. So all we can say with any certainty is that children of all ages and stages of development were being brought to Jesus. Now, Mark says that the desire was that Jesus would lay his hands on the children and touch them. Matthew tells us that it was the purpose was that Jesus would pray over them. Now, I haven't been able to find any commentator who is willing to venture a guess as to what this blessing was that the children received when he touched them. But I think we could safely say that if it were possible for us to do so, to take our children to Jesus, have him put his hands on them and bless them and pray over them, we would consider that a blessing, I would think. It was a common thing in that day for men who were considered aged or holy to bless children formerly. We have the account in Genesis 48 of Jacob blessing his grandchildren in that way. One ancient writer says that Ignatius, who was later to become the bishop of Antioch, was one of the very children who was brought to Christ for his blessing. Now, these children weren't being brought to Jesus to be healed. There's no indication in the text that any of them were suffering from an ailment of any kind. And I think we can say with a fair amount of certainty that had that been the case, had parents been bringing children to Jesus to be healed, the disciples would probably have let them through rather than send them away. But we have no reason to think that was the case. All we know is what we know from the text. They were simply brought to Christ to be blessed, which was quite common in that day. But now notice what happens. The disciples rebuked those who brought them. Now, the word that they use here indicates that they frowned on the action of people bringing little ones to Christ. They may not have liked it. They were unsuccessful in that endeavor. But what an amazing scenario we have here. It wasn't the enemies of Christ who were trying to keep the children away. It was His own disciples It wasn't the scribes or the Pharisees trying to interrupt His ongoing ministry. It was Jesus' own followers. Now, most likely what was happening here was that the disciples saw this as a waste of the Master's time. He had so many more, quote, important things to do. And besides, how much good could it do these little ones anyway? They're just children. Now, what was the reaction of Jesus? When Jesus saw it, He was greatly displeased. Now, the word here could mean he was in anguish, in great inner pain, that he was vexed, and another very possible interpretation is he was indignant. Jesus was indignant. No matter which one of those you want to use, there's no getting away from the fact that Jesus Christ was very upset with his disciples. He wasn't just displeased, he wasn't a little displeased, he was greatly displeased. Now here's an unusual sight. You have the meek and lowly Jesus, not only displeased, but much displeased, greatly displeased, indignant. And he's greatly displeased not with his opponents or his enemies, but with his own disciples. Now what have they done to incite this kind of a reaction from Christ? Had they been guilty of neglect, of unkindness, of a gross disregard of Christ's schedule or His comfort or convenience? Had they they denied His doctrine or His deity? No, it was none of these. They discouraged parents from bringing children to Himself. And this was an offense that could not go unreproved. And I take it, since Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we may rightly conclude that He still entertains similar feelings towards anyone and all who would imitate His disciples in this way. So in other words, Jesus is greatly displeased with all who would prevent or discourage little ones from coming to Him. Now, it isn't my intent to even lightly touch on the issues that people normally want to raise here, such as what does it mean when Jesus says, for of such is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. What I do want to deal with is Christ's great displeasure at those who would hinder children from approaching Him. And I want to extrapolate a principle here and then bring in another text in a few moments and tie them together to come to one larger conclusion. Obviously, and we could think of how do people hinder children from coming to Jesus. There are some obvious ones. I mean, people hinder little children from coming to Christ when they don't take them to church at all. Secondly, where they don't take them to church where the gospel is preached. I think parents hinder little ones from coming to Christ. And since we have at least an allowance, a flexibility of zero to twelve years according to the meaning of the words, when they pick a church based on the music, or when they pick a church based on the youth group, rather than the faithful preaching from the pulpit, they are very, very guilty of possibly hindering little ones from coming to Christ. Obviously, parents hinder children from approaching Christ when they give them a bad and an unchristian example at home. And they give the children ungodly examples of behavior rather than godly ones. I just finished this afternoon editing a previously unpublished sermon by Jonathan Edwards on 1 Corinthians 8.13, where he talks about how careful we need to be that we don't lead others into sin, and the application was basically young people to young people and parents to their own children. That if we don't set a godly example at home... We are leading others into our children into sin because what they see is what they will think we believe. What I'm thinking of, though, is much more subtle. Now, I run the risk here of preaching to the choir and taking the possibility of offending some of you because you say, well, I've already done this. Why is he telling us this? We're a Reformed church. We're the OPC. Etc., etc., etc. I I don't know about your churches. I don't know about your practices. And if this is something you already do, praise God for it. And I hope that you're confirmed in it. But what I'm thinking of is more this when parents and churches hinder little ones from coming to Christ, when they don't keep them in the service for the preaching of the word. Now, maybe that is true of your church that your children do stay there and listen to the sermon, that would be the rare exception in my ministerial experience. And it was absolutely shocking to me when I was a pastor, and I hate these words now, just like I hated them then the first time I saw it, the children are dismissed. And my eyes went up and I started to shake a little bit. And afterwards, I said to the head elder, I says, Why are we dismissing the children? Well, they're going to the nursery. Well, what are they going to do there? Well, we have Mr. Veggie Tales videos for them, and they can play with balls, and there's some trucks down there that they can go vroom vroom with. I oh, we went into a catatonic state. And this is where we had this discussion I mentioned to you before, where I says, Why aren't we keeping the children in the worship service? Well, they don't understand. Well, how many people would stay in the worship service if they didn't understand and got to leave? I mentioned to you that book by James Janeway called A Token for Children, which was the classic evangelistic work for children of the 17th century. He began it with these words, Your children are not too young to die, they are not too young to go to hell, and they are not too young to be saved. How is that for an opener for a children's book? Now, I realize that many evangelicals have adopted a doctrine of justification by death alone. That is, all babies dying go to heaven. I believe that to be a denial of the doctrine of original sin. And typically, when people believe that, they claim the innocence of the child is the basis for God saving it. But if we accept, as Scripture teaches, that everyone is a sinner from the moment of their conception then that innocence must fall by the wayside, or that supposed innocence. And I don't wish to deal with the issue of, do all babies dying go to heaven here? Let's just deal with the issue of the ones who are still alive tonight, okay? The Bible couldn't be more clear when in Romans 10.17 it tells us, faith comes by hearing, literally the whole phrase, faith comes by hearing someone preach Christ. And it is also quite clear that the normal means for anyone to hear is through a preacher of the Word. In fact, it even asks the question, how shall they hear without a preacher? In other words, that is God's normal methods. But if you go to most worship services, and maybe some of you, just to appreciate what you've got, ought to go to another church that's considered evangelical to come back and kiss the feet your minister walks on and say, I didn't know how good we had it. I had uh, kind of grown up spiritually at Grace Community Church in Southern California where there are two services every Sunday morning of four to 5,000 people. The first time I preached there is a pulpit supply. There were more people in the choir behind me than I'd ever preached to in my life. Not to mention the 4,000 people that were out here. And I got spoiled. I thought that's what all churches were like. And then I went to work at a United Methodist College in the middle of Missouri. And, And I just have come to believe this. Any church that starts off with the word United, stay away from. Because they're not united, or if they are, they won't be for long. Every United Church has a split, and then it's guilty of false advertising. And so I went to a church in this little town, and the closest thing I can think of is Mayberry. And I took my Bible to the church on the campus of the college, and I was the only one with a Bible. And then I realized soon why I was the only one with a Bible, and that's because they didn't use it. The sermon was from Zorba the Greek. And he, the pastor that day likened The Christian life to an episode of Wagon Train. Now only some of you older ones will remember that, where God was the wagon master, Jesus Christ was the scout, and the Holy Spirit was the saloon girl whose job it was to comfort the travelers on their journey. Didn't seem to bother anybody that the saloon girl was also a hooker. Kind of blows the analogy wide open. And I wrote back a letter to John after being gone for about three months, and I said, John, all the time I sat in the pews, I thought you were making this stuff up and you were overstating the case. I said, John, you've got to tell the people, if anything, you're understating the case. It's much worse out here than you're telling them. Sometimes we get so comfortable in our Reformed churches that we forget the fact that 99.99% of the people don't have this, and they don't believe it. And they wouldn't believe it if you told them about it. That you've really got a good thing going if you're in an OPC church where the gospel of a sovereign God is preached. But if you go to a typical church, even a strong evangelical church, the children are present for the announcements, and they're present for the offering, and they're present for the congregational singing, and for anything else that might be considered opening exercises, and then typically they are dismissed just before the sermon. But my friends, Scripture never tells us that faith comes by announcements. And it doesn't tell us that faith comes by congregational singing, or that faith comes by offerings. Rather, we are told in no uncertain terms that faith comes by hearing someone preach Christ and shall, how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, let me be a little more sarcastic here, and I'm doing this pointedly so, and purposely so. Faith doesn't come by playing in the nursery. And it doesn't come from watching videos. And it doesn't come from reading storybooks. And it doesn't come from bouncing balls off other kids' heads. Faith comes by hearing the message of Christ. And that is God's normal method to reach unsaved people of any age. It's one of the reasons, as I said, the Puritans had the children in the worship service. There's a whole theology, by the way, of architecture. I found that very interesting when I was doing some of my doctoral work, the architecture of Reformed churches. And one of those simply is the elevated pulpit. There were two reasons for that. One, they literally wanted the people to look up to the minister. And secondly, they wanted the people literally to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And when you have one pulpit, it's always central because the preaching of the gospel is the central thing of Reformed worship. And when you have two pulpits, as you, for example, D. James Kennedy's church. He's got that wonderful pulpit over here that he preaches from with the sounding board and all of that. And uh, I was told there are two reasons, by the way, for the sounding board. One is because that helps acoustically the sound to go out to a large congregation. But secondly, because so many of the churches were wooden and there were bugs in the rafters, it kept the bugs from falling on the preacher's head while he was preaching. Pretty practical stuff, I'd say. But then you usually have a smaller pulpit over here where the Word of God is read. And that is because when the Word is preached, it's even more significant than the Word of God is read. So you have a smaller pulpit for this and a much larger pulpit for that. And you'll also see most of those old churches are built in the shape of a cross. And one of the things the Puritans demanded at the Protestant Reformation, that the altar was taken down that kept people... From God, And so all of that was brought down here, because this is where God meets with his people. So in everything they did, they were expressing some kind of theological truth. Faith comes by hearing. That's a theological truth we need to remember. Now, it's important to realize that Romans doesn't teach that faith will always follow whenever the word is preached. But it is important to realize that it is teaching that rarely will faith follow when the gospel isn't preached. And saving faith has to be in someone and in something. And saving faith is grounded on nothing else but the truth of God's Word as revealed in Holy Scripture, preached by faithful men, and applied by the Spirit of God if He's pleased to do so. Paul uses that, gives us that idea that it's a perhaps when he says in Timothy, if peradventure God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's not a guarantee. It's something God will grant and he grants it sovereignly. The power though is not in the messenger, it's in the message itself. Now, I'm up here, I'm a little animated, I raise my voice, I lower my voice, but here's a man like Jonathan Edwards who preached for the most part in a monotone, reading it verbatim from these little post-it note-sized pieces of paper in his hand because he didn't want to be guilty of manipulating people. He said, "If if God is going to work, let it be the Spirit of God that touches their hearts, not any manipulation that I might do. And Paul has said in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I think we've lost faith in that statement. I think you can look across the broad spectrum of the church and see that the church has lost faith in that. The church doesn't believe it anymore. And people say, well, preaching is irrelevant, it's outdated. I guess God should have thought of that before He had it put In the scriptures. You know, we're going to have to come up with something new in the 20th century because they won't buy preaching anymore. You know what Jesus said about that? I mean, we think we've got to augment the preaching of the gospel. He says if they won't believe the Bible, they won't believe it if people rise from the dead. We think we've got to come up with all kinds of gimmicks. And so there are churches in Indiana, for example, that have McDonald's trucks come and give away cheeseburgers to bring people in. And it gets worse. You know about Bill Hybel's church in the Chicago suburbs that has the movies, has the rock and roll bands. If you want preaching, you go on Wednesday, Wednesday night. But if you want to come to church where it doesn't cost you anything where it's a no-cost Christianity. You come on Sunday and you get entertained. Very interesting thing has happened at that church. They said, we're not going to ask people for money. Now they don't have any money. they have to lay off staff and they can't get anything done because they don't ask for money, so nobody gives any money. That's a very interesting situation, by the way. Here was a man who was brought up in an RCA church. I met Bill at a spring. Uh, At a Gerstner conference, by the way, at the Ligonier Valley Study Center, you never met a more miserable man sitting under John Gerstner. John Gerstner would say, If peradventure God would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, Heibel says, No, I have to be able to guarantee people that if they do this, they will get saved. And Dr. Gerstner said, In Bill Heibel's, you will be guaranteeing them what God never did. And he was just miserable the whole week. What they did was they realized that people in the neighborhood weren't going to church. So they decided to canvass the neighborhood and ask people, why don't you go to church? And they decided that whatever the people told them, they would change. So people says, I don't like being asked for money. Okay, we won't ask for money. I don't like having to get up early and dress up for church. Okay, come as you are. I don't like hearing sermons. We won't preach. Now, isn't it interesting that here's a church that let unbelievers define what the church should be. Rather than letting God define what the church should be, they decided to let sinners who don't even like church define what the church should be. And you know what they've come up with? No church. It's not a church. R.C. calls it Chicago Cabaret Christianity. Because that's what it is. It's a nightclub. But it's not a church. And what it's shown people is that if it stops being entertaining, you just don't go. And that's why we have churches, and so many, uh, when I was in the PCA, that's what we saw happening. More and more churches following the Willow Creek model and losing all their distinctives as a Reformed church. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel preached by faithful men is the power of God unto salvation. But the power isn't in the one who brings the gospel. The power is in the gospel that is brought. Now, in that passage in Romans 10, Paul had quoted Isaiah, Who has believed our report? Now, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek New Testament, the word report there is the same as the word for hearing in the verse that we read in in Romans 10. Faith never comes but by hearing, and that is by hearing the Word of God. And it's interesting that the best commentators take that where they say, how can they believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And they say the preposition doesn't belong. It should best be read, how shall they believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher. It's not of whom, it is whom. How can they believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how can they believe without a preacher? And that's why the Puritans were so strong in this, that when the man of God gets up and faithfully exegetes the Scripture, it is not he who is speaking anymore, it is God who is speaking. And that's why they held their ministers in such high esteem. The apostles communicated their testimony, not only by their actual voices, but by their individual writings, and both are comprehended here by what is called hearing. Now, I realize that God can save people any way He chooses to do so. But it is very dangerous theologically to build a theology of exceptions. For example, people always want to look at the thief on the cross. They say, well, see, he didn't... And the Puritans would say this, There is one example of a deathbed conversion, so we won't despair. But there is only one example, so we won't presume. And again, we go back to this, that God's normal methods is to, method is to change people and to change their heart when the Spirit applies the preached word. Or they want to bring up Saul. Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. Fine, get a horse. Damascus is that way. Take off and take your chances. When you hit the ocean, it'll get a little interesting. But you also have to realize that Saul was a student of theology and divinity. This didn't happen in a vacuum. He thought he was doing God's work in persecuting Christians until God opened his eyes and his heart to the truth. Now, hearing presupposes several things. In all of Christ's teachings, both here on earth and in heaven, it would be difficult to find any exhortation that he repeated more in one form or of another than that of hearing. Now, hearing presupposes something. What is it? Listening. Hearing presupposes listening. RC says that the most oft repeated command of Jesus is fear not. But I believe the most oft repeated exhortation of Christ is this: he who has ears to hear, let him hear. To hear the Word of God, we must listen to the Word of God. And this is why I can't understand why people would pray for the salvation of their children and then let them go out of the worship service right before the one thing that God has ordained to reach their hearts if He's pleased to do so. Now again, that's where we hear this objection, but these little ones don't understand You don't know what they don't understand. In fact, you would be amazed how much they do understand. They've got us played like a fine fiddle for the most part. They've memorized every song that Barney has ever sung. They know more about Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears than you know about God, I would imagine. Or whatever pop singer is the big deal these days. I remember I was asked to do a chapel service for the Chicago Bears one time when they came to Pittsburgh to play the Steelers. And I was thinking to myself, what am I going to hear these guys two hours from game time, three hours from game time? And these are, you know, who knows what kind of theological training they've got, whether any of them even care or not. Most of them come to the chapel service because it's a show of team unity. And so I decided I would dumb it down as much as I could for these poor, ignorant, professional football players. And then they walked in carrying their playbooks that were this thick. And I asked one of the offensive linemen, I said, how many running plays do you have in there? He said, 400. I said, how many passing plays? 600. How many of them do you know? He said, you've got to know them all or you won't make it here. So you know 1,000 plays? Right. Give me the language of one play, just one. Brown, right, X-pop, Z-go, 42, Durango on three. And I went back and I rewrote my sermon. I said, if they can understand this, they can understand the Bible. We don't know what they do and don't understand, but we've mentioned several times the two instances of unborns responding favorably to the presence of God. That is Jeremiah and John the Baptist. Secondly, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to explain the Scripture to people at their capacity, not ours. And it's a rejection of God's appointed means as given in Scripture. One of the things they do regularly at MacArthur's church is they have uh, almost a weekly baptismal service in the evening. And they have quite a ministry to... um, If I call them retarded people, I hope I don't offend anybody. Uh, What's the proper, correct term? Developmentally challenged. I'm calorically challenged. They are developmentally challenged. And they have the aisles lined with folks in wheelchairs. And some of them are really, really challenged. And they sit there and they drool and they'll make all kinds of sounds. And nobody, it doesn't bother anybody. They're glad to have them there. And it's not at all unusual for John to baptize one of these people. And one of them, I remember, John had to carry him. He was so uh, crippled that John had to literally carry him into the baptismal. But John won't baptize anybody who has not make a profession of faith. And he has to do it in front of the whole congregation. Now, this particular man couldn't speak, and he looked as deformed and crippled as you could imagine a person. I mean, down here, drooling out of over here, and his legs were crippled, and his hands were like this. And he had a little board that he could do digitally reproduced words. And so John says to him, and the man's got his board here. Let's just say his name's Mike, okay? Mike? Mike? Are you a Christian? Are you a born-again believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Yes, John, I am. Okay. How does a person become a Christian, Mike? I thought you already knew that, John. (laughs) And here, we're feeling sorry for this guy. You can't call him a stand-up comedian, but you could call him some kind of a comedian. A smart aleck in the baptismal. Think he doesn't understand? I think we denigrate the work of the Holy Spirit if we think that. Let God determine what they can and can not understand. And in the Scripture, when the Word of God was read or preached, everyone in the family was present for that reason. Because faith comes by hearing. Now, let me allow for this. And again, I don't know what your practices are. If instruction is being given, and it's good teaching in an environment that's suitable for little ones, that's different. But I have never yet found that to be the case. Normally, it's recreation and entertainment of some sort. I'm also of the opinion, and this is all that it is, is just an opinion, that if a church decides that children need to go somewhere else during the preaching of the Word, that what they hear is exactly what they would have heard if they'd stayed. So they're not getting out of anything. It's just, In fact, this would put the teacher of the children and the pastor in the same place on the same page, and since the session is determined that this is what the pastor is going to preach on, then you've got the authority of the session saying, and this is what the little ones will hear also. But if we remove children from sitting under the preaching of the Word, aren't we hindering them from coming to Christ? And isn't Jesus greatly displeased with such a dreadful thing? And if they're not being taught the Gospel, I can remember as a kid all kinds of flannel graph stories. But I can't remember ever hearing the Gospel. I can remember cutting out pictures of Samson and lions, and David, and Goliath, but I never heard the gospel. And if we don't have our children sitting under the preaching of the word, aren't we being disobedient to the command to preach the gospel to every creature? And unless children fall outside the scope of being a creature, we're obligated to preach to them as well. It just seems that when we come to children, we seem to have what, we, what I'd call a little Bo Peep mentality about their souls. Leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. But that's not what the Scripture says. Children have souls that need to be saved. Now let me take it a step further. I think this speaks to parents who keep their children with them in the worship service, but they let them do something besides listening and hearing. Faith doesn't come by sleeping on the pew during the sermon. And faith doesn't come by eating Cheerios to keep quiet. And faith doesn't come by coloring just so you don't disturb anybody. Faith comes by hearing, which presupposes listening. Faith does not come from being in the presence of gospel preaching. It doesn't come from being in the same room as gospel preaching, Faith comes by hearing someone preach Christ and then being moved in heart by the Holy Spirit. So, parents, I say this, and grandparents, I say this make them sit still and be attentive. Make them listen. Now, they can learn to sleep with their eyes closed. Some of the adults do too. But if they're not hearing, they're accountable because they're not listening. And one of the things, as we talked about last night with regard to family worship, is you can make them accountable by giving them something to fill in. At the end of the sermon, I want these answers. And when we get home, we're going to discuss these three things. So you be listening. And when you get to that point, right there, so they know to write it down. But again, I call you back to your baptismal vows that you took when you had your infants baptized Or when you, as a member of the congregation, took those vows with them to do everything in your power to bring them to faith. But faith comes by hearing. Make them sit still. Make them listen. Now again, that's going to be helped by having family worship at home. And this also increases the listening responsibility for the parents who had to instruct the children further in the meaning of the sermon. And as I mentioned this morning, is it really a coincidence That during the average age, during the 17th century, the average age of conversion was between six and nine, when now it's ten years older. Parents, if you love your children, put them under the God appointed means of salvation. Let the word of Christ ring in our ears. And listen to the words of Jesus Let the little children approach me, don't hinder them. Now, there are a myriad of ways in which it's possible to hinder little children from coming to Jesus Christ. One is by letting them listen to error. One of the reasons that we have done several children's books is because there's so much tripe out there. And when people say, what's different about your children's books, I tell them this, you won't have to apologize to your kids ten years from now for giving it to them. That any of our children should be unsaved is a heartbreaking thought, but what's even worse is that if that is because, to some extent, because of our carelessness and our neglect, that they're not even hearing the gospel when we take them to church because we don't expect them to listen. And since for 1850 years of church history, children were in the worship service, it's only in the last... Footnote of history that we've changed that. And I keep seeing more and more that we need to get back to the future. When these things worked because people believed that they would work because God said to do it that way. Dismiss the children? No. Let the little children come to the Savior and do not hinder them. They are not too young to die. They are not too young to go to hell and they are not too young to be saved. But faith comes by hearing. Make them listen. Let them hear. And then pray that God will use His appointed means for their salvation. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, we bring the soul's of our children to you this evening. Asking that if any of them are not saved, that you would help us to use the appointed... ...how to do in the vows that we have taken at their baptisms to bring them to faith. And so, Lord, we pray that we are taking them to gospel churches where faithful ministers are faithfully preaching the doctrine that has been once for all delivered to the saints, that we are, as ministers, are making our sermons understandable, that we are seeking to make our people students of Christ. We pray that our examples at home are godly examples. That the environments in our home are conducive to making our children seek salvation. That we are teaching them and showing them the love of Christ. That we will make them accountable for what they hear because you will hold them accountable for what they hear. May we do all that lies within us to seek their salvation as well. So that we can have assurance that we are not only together now, but that we will be together for all of eternity as a family. That none of us will be lost. And certainly we pray that none of us would be lost due to our own negligence and carelessness. That we would never develop a fatalism that keeps us from using the appointed means of grace. May we love our children enough to do all of these things for the sake of their souls and the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.